Blog Talk Radio. It's Pundit's Pub from New York City, Greensboro, North Carolina, and Jim Comey's Barbecue Pit. I'm Stephen Love. What is neoliberalism? Most people don't know what it is. A friend of mine recently got mad mad at me for using the term because he thinks people will confuse it with being a liberal. Trumba, be quiet. That's Trumba, our mascot. I'm sorry, but we cannot avoid using the term because... That is the name that scholars have given the ideology that runs all of our lives. That's what neoliberalism is. It's the dominant socioeconomic worldview that over the past four decades or so has come to imprison the globe in its nameless, faceless tyranny. Neoliberalism is a death-cut cult ideology characterized by a market fundamentalism that reduces human beings to commodities. Neoliberalism is economic Darwinism. Neoliberalism is an elaborate cover for the economic depredations of the predatory 1%. Neoliberalism, like some virus, uses the rhetoric of freedom and liberty to destroy the foundations of democracy. Neoliberalism sets itself up as a virtual law of nature when, in fact, it is a deliberate man-made system designed to engineer human interactions and solidify power at the top. Adam Smith is held in reverence by capitalists, yet he would despise capitalism as it's practiced today. Adam Smith was an Enlightenment thinker, and quite a moralist as well. In the famous Wealth of Nations from 1776, he decries the immorality of the richest among us, quote, all for ourselves and nothing for other people seems in every age of the world to have been the vile maxim of the masters of mankind. We first hear the term neoliberalism in 1938 at a conference in Paris that was focused on denouncing what they termed collectivism, socialism, and laissez-faire liberalism. In a clear reaction to Keynesian New Deal economics, the conference inspired Friedrich Hayek to write The Road to Serfdom, where he warned that collectivism would lead to totalitarianism. He formed a group with Milton Friedman and others called the Mount Pelerin Society that was financed by millionaires and advocated deregulation, privatization, and the primacy of the unfettered market. So we fast forward to Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. And then you see the firm establishment of neoliberalism in the 1980s era of greed is good, the destruction of labor unions, the beginning of the dismantling of the New Deal, 
and the proclamation that there is no alternative. Maggie loved to say that. They called it Tina. There is no capitalism equals democracy. Government is the enemy. The state only exists to police an unfettered global marketplace, protect private property, and get out of the way of the noble job creators of the 1% whose wealth that they had strip-mined from the people would somehow trickle back down to the lower ranks. Neoliberalism sold this bill of goods with gusto throughout the Clinton years when the Democratic Party became addicted to Wall Street cash and fully embraced the marketization of everything. Private problems became separated from public concerns. Each individual was told to act responsibly, be a good consumer, and opportunity would be theirs. Just think about yourself in your own best interests at all times. Poverty became criminalized, and the very notion of solidarity belittled. Culture became debased as celebrity worship replaced citizenship and spectacle replaced debate. The systematic imposition of neoliberalism reached directly into the foundation of democracy, public education. Neoliberals pushed for the privatization of education through school vouchers and charter schools. Education is redesigned to prepare workers for the machine rather than teach free citizens how to think. In fact, they don't want you to think. Henry Giroux, a professor of education and a keen critic of neoliberalism, warns in his book, Neoliberalism's War on Higher Education, that, quote, with society overtaken by the morality of self-interest, profit-seeking weaves its way into every possible space, relationship, and institution. For example, the search for high-end profits has descended upon the educational sector with a vengeance as private bankers, hedge fund elites, and an assortment of billionaires are investing in for-profit and charter schools while advocating policies that disinvest in public education. Unquote. Students at the bottom are consigned to the school-to-prison pipeline in public schools that are sneeringly termed government schools by right-wing neoliberal politicians. Teachers and their unions are viciously attacked as incompetent parasites that perpetuate failure, even though they must struggle to teach poor children in unfunded institutions. In a system that spends only 6% of its discretionary budget on education and 54% on the military wants you to just, quote, fly and enjoy America's great destination spots. Go down to Disney World in Florida. Take your families and enjoy life the way we want it enjoyed, unquote, while we bomb the shit out of those darkies threatening our oil. This is Pundit's Pub number three. 
neoliberalism and the obliteration of education. Special guest is Vincent Morano. Vincent is a playwright and director whose work is often seen in New York's International Fringe Festival and Manhattan Theater Source. He is author of the plays La Vigilia, Confirmation, and A Collapse. He is also an educator. He's a teacher and assistant principal at a high school in the South Bronx. Welcome to Pundit's Pub, Vinny. Welcome, Steve. Thank you for having me. Vinny, how can we save education as the foundation of democracy? Well, the first thing is the education in this country was never considered a tradition, definitely not public education. It was always a means in many cases to stratify the social system so that people would fall into the jobs that people needed them to be. And then we had a, a kind of a mind shift around the 70s and 80s where people started saying, maybe we should try to make uh, higher education, going to college more affordable, more available. And that created a whole list of complications and problems that they never really satisfied. And through this kind of like stumbling, especially in the New York state system, but throughout the country, through the stumbling to try to find an educational model that would actually do this, that would actually get most of our children educated and successful, into this vacuum came capitalists, into this vacuum came people who were anti uh, uh, desegregationists. They wanted to keep kids apart. They didn't want their money being spent on kids who weren't their kids, who weren't part of their group. And we see the rise under Bloomberg, especially in New York City, of charter schools and the expansion of vouchers. Uh, vouchers have never been successful in terms of improving education. Uh, the Betty DeVos's experiment uh, is a perfect example. Uh, she never was able to do anything with all the money that she redirected and all the support she gave to for-profit schools and charter schools and vouchers. So she never improved anything. In New York City, we've seen marginal improvements under Bloomberg, mostly because there has been this counterforce of the unions making sure that all the schools are not completely deprived and that the charters are not just given a blank slate. Um, unfortunately, under Cuomo, he's been very pro-charter, and that has led to this explosion of charter schools, which have been largely unsuccessful. They have actually produced worse results for the most part. There are some charter schools that do work, but they are of an experimental model more in common with Central Park East uh, High School uh, than anything by probably what I think one of the worst blights on education in New York, even Moskowitz, um, has done. So the only way that we can make education truly a foundation for our democracy is to uh, acknowledge that all kids learn differently, simplify the structure, and put more money into it, which by your own introduction is obviously the government won't be, is not willing to do that. It can be done. Uh, it requires a kind of compromise and acknowledgement that everybody has a right to a public education that works, that currently uh, po politicians and, quite frankly, Steve, a lot of the public is not willing to do because people feel if you give a good school to somebody else on the other side of the tracks, you're taking away from my kids. So, I mean, we can go on about what to do. 
But the first thing that has to happen is this uh, really a freeze on any expansion of charters and, and, and voucher systems completely and a reexamination of how the money is spent. We spend more money on education in this country than most of the other countries in the world, but our results are weaker, mainly because, as you have implied in your introduction, a lot of the money is not going to students but to businesses who are having their hands open and are creating business models, whether it be textbook companies who keep changing their textbooks every few years and demand that you sign up for uh, fees to, to get expanded information online and do it every year to renew, or with uh, technology companies that uh, charge an inordinate bulk rate for installation of computers or technology that they would never charge to a, a private company. So that's where we are right now. It has to be a re imagining of how the money is spent uh, on the local scale. And uh, it's going to take a lot of work. And it it definitely has to be an acknowledgement that it's the profit motive that is currently inching its way into the mainstream is completely wrongheaded and ultimately evil. What do you say to people who would say to you, uh, well, the, you know, uh, the marketplace is efficient and and um and taking a a private approach is 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 more efficient um and and um it 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 holds uh the employees i e the teachers to a to a higher standard i think that efficiency when it comes to educating individual kids education for individual kids is is an quite frankly, an idiotic approach. It's, it's not, not even apples and oranges. It's apples and, and, and blackjacks. It's, it's, it's a ridiculous way to approach it because kids learn differently. And so when you're talking about efficiency, education, to make education valuable for its profit, the profit is not a monetary one. You can't equate a successful student with that student getting a job, paying taxes, and try to make this through line. That doesn't work. What, it, what makes a successful student is ability to understand his world, his community, and his, and his ability to contribute to it. And for that, there's a lot of factors that are not measurable, that require more time, that require uh, curriculums that help kids understand uh, the right and wrong of things, that help kids understand not just uh, mathematics and sciences, but ethics and how to, how to be part of a community, and equality. Uh, we don't teach kids equality in schools right now. We do, by design, teach kids to compete. And therefore, with competition comes winners and losers. And this idea that by making something uh, efficient uh, in terms of streamlining, by, by placing blame and saying it, the only reason it doesn't work is because the teachers don't teach well, or some other reason like the parents don't the parents are poor therefore the kids can never learn which is another way of saying it is completely erroneous kids can learn quite frankly steve if our if our school system was completely unsuccessful we would have uh like a walking dead kind of scenario i mean it'd be disaster out there because if you've ever been in a room with 30 teenagers you know that you're a hair's breadth from everything falling apart but what happens is that most kids, most young people, 
are very determined to be successful. They don't want to be failures, but they need time and they need support that is real. And you cannot measure that and you cannot bottom line that. That's, that's something that, need, that is changes from community to community, from school to school, and from student to student. And it requires a flexibility and a willingness to put a little extra money in to put those hours for the, some students to need to create opportunities and jobs after school. When I was in New York City, we had summer school. We had this massive summer program for jobs. So when kids weren't in school, 40, 50, 60 percent of the school population was either working in parks and in play streets or the younger kids were, were going there. There was, a tri- there was something to give them uh, um, a reason to do well in school, to move forward, to be part of society. They, they, they felt acknowledged. Now there's no acknowledgement unless the kids are, are beating each other up uh, academically and competing. And so I, I really reject the idea that efficiency is even a, a, um, an idea that should be applied to education in the way that you said it. It, it's, it mm-hmm. shouldn't be applied in a business model. Now, if you look at the city overall, of course, as, as someone who's in real estate, I see it all the time. Parents are very concerned about which school district they're they're going to be in. So uh, I want to get my kid into PS6. And how do we account for the disparities between PS6 and uh, a school in the South Bronx? Oh, the disparity is, is very simple. Uh, what happens is in PS, PS6, the parents are more hands-on and vocal. And, and what the city system, what you'll know in the city system, an, a parent that advocates for their child will end up with a successful child nine times out of ten. The problem in the South Bronx is that parents are, for whatever reason, they could be working multiple jobs, they could be uh, trying to trying to get off uh, drugs, they could be uh, have multiple children at home. They could be an illegal immigrant who's trying to hide their status. There's a lot of little different things that occur in a high poverty area like the South Bronx, which, by the way, has the highest special ed needs population in the city of New York, and is the highest poverty level in District Seven, where my school is. So, to compare that to, let's say, District Two in Manhattan. Uh, or District 1, where you have a median income of over $100,000 a year, where in my neighborhood, where my school is, the median income is below 30. And you can't, those, that just alone, the child is coming into school unprepared. What people don't want to hear is that a lot of children who go to these schools come from families that have already paid to have them prepared before they go in. They're at a different level when they walk in the building. And so when they're in that building, they don't want their kids to mix with kids who come at a lower level. They'll, they'll dilute the, 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 the pace of the class. Again, we go back to this competition. And the minute you put competition, and by competition, they also mean segregation. Right. And that, and was, you know? Yep. It, that, that's part of that competition. Okay. I don't want right, my kid to be associated. Right. Let's bring in our pundits. I'm I'm actually going to uh, have to call out to Greensboro, North Carolina. Uh, we s- seem to have lost Falcon. I think he's coming in now. Falcon, are you there? I am. Falcon's uh, Pundits Pub contributing editor. Um, we also have joining us uh, today uh, James Ford, who's a fitness entrepreneur he has his own business called ideal being fitness 
You could find that at idealbeingfitness.com. James, how are you? I'm amazing. How are you guys doing today? Good. Good. How did you uh, take what uh, Vinny had to say uh, compared to your experience uh, going to school in where you grew up with Long Island, was it? I grew up in Queens until I was in eighth grade. And then I moved to Long Island, and I had a completely different experience in the, in the education system. Uh, <laughs> like, I really, I really hated going to school in Queens. Like, I really, I had a really bad time with two teachers, and like, I wasn't allowed on school trips, and like, just really bad stuff. Like, I really, uh, and then when I moved to Long Island when I was in eighth grade, it was completely different. You know, like, I was actually ahead of the people in Long Island. Um, academically as far as where they were the curriculum um and i just had more freedom and i just it was it was it was just an easier time for me but by the time i I was already in eighth grade by that time so it was just uh, night and day um i agree with him what he's saying as far as segregation and people wanting to separate you know their their children from people that the have-nots etc and things like that and what you said about uh the budget as far as the defense budget it's, it's supremely accurate but i don't think that they want the masses to be educated the powers that be because i think that an educated population would be more uh would be harder to control uh but yeah it's just i really had a a terrible time in, in, in new york city public schools falcon um has neoliberalism destroyed education without a doubt i had to abandon my textbook and intro to philosophy at the university this semester. Never have I had to deal with that before. You've been a you professor want me to elaborate for a or? long time. Sure, I'd like you to, to elaborate on that in terms well, of the, the expectations of a, of a student, uh, say, 40 years ago compared to uh, what you're running into today. Uh-huh. Well, let's see. I had one of my students tell me that she's never seen a professor who's capable of teaching with no notes, without PowerPoint, without reading something, who is able to switch topics on the fly as needed by the classroom. In the meantime, when I asked them, um, I told them I teach using the Socratic method. When I asked them what that was, no one knew. One student had an idea that there was someone named Socrates. Galileo, forget it. We were talking about uh, just war theory toward the end of the course. I mentioned the Vietnam War. I got a round of blank stares. I said, you do know what the Vietnam War was, do you not? And a hand went up and I called on her and she said, we did mention it. Professor Falcon. But no, we really don't know. And what what, what grade level is this? Um, I had freshmen through seniors in my intro to philosophy class. Oh, my God. At a university. At university. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, I I think that's not – that's – Steve and Professor, I think that's, that's fairly common that kids have holes in their education. There was this book that caused a lot of controversy. 
Ed Hirsch's um, cultural literacy. And it became the canon of people who wanted to advance a more uh, Western-centered education to make sure that kids had a grounding in the, in, the, in the foundation of our own democracy, where our ideas came from. What happened with that is that you, that ran up against something called multiculturalism, which diluted, in effect, a lot of the, uh, the education center of, of schools. And what I mean by that is what is the common knowledge that all the kids are going to learn? Uh, keep in mind that the United States has no education system united. We can go back to No Child Left Behind or Race to the Top. Both of them are only attempts to create like some type of national program. But before that, there is none. What kids learn, how kids learn history in New York is different than how they learn it in Texas. But Vinny, you mentioned earlier, you mentioned earlier about textbook uh, companies and how um, you're sort of the, the, the product is shoved down your throat. And is it not the case that the state of Texas has a uh, and, and all the yahoos down there on the textbook committees who want uh, creationism to be taught um, skews the textbooks for the rest of the United States because a, such a large state that buys so many textbooks uh, sort of has to get their way in terms of content. That was the case for uh, for a number of generations. Uh, Texas is is the way textbooks uh, in Texas goes, so goes most of the country. The good news, if there's any, is that with the introduction of of digital resources, that localities can create get a little bit of a control of that huge and twisted slant. But uh, going back to what uh, Professor Falcon had said earlier. Uh, the ignorance of certain things in this country is definitely a dynamic of the la- latest generation who feel that they don't have to memorize and they don't have to retain information because it's always a Google click away. And so there is no need. They learn it for a very short period of time, if that, for a standardized exam, if that. And then it's jettisoned from their, ma- their brain to make room for the next, uh, you know, uh, Cardassian uh, <laughs> well, what they're I mean, telling they, me <laughs> is that it is not even multi multiculturalism. They were raised no. in an environment where, because of No Child Left Behind, on the first day of every academic year, preparation begins for passing the test at the end of the year. True. And unfortunately, at the university... Um, I was scandalized to find that now when you adopt a textbook, the book comes with every conceivable test you could imagine, (laughs) the author's notes, the author's lesson plans, a website with additional resources. So many of my peers walk in, oh, and the PowerPoint slides are pre-made as well, they put up the PowerPoint slides, they read the PowerPoint slides, they post the PowerPoint slides, the students download the PowerPoint slides, often annotated either by the publisher or the professor, and that's what they learn. So when mm-hmm. we talked about reasoning, an apple is red. This is red. What would you conclude? I have no fucking earthly idea. So we had to go all the way back to this is how you think. Deplorable. How and you they think don't get is the, such a luxury. Go ahead. Yeah, they don't how think. How you think? 
Yeah, it's a luxury right now. It really is. Well. It's a luxury for us <laughs> because people feel that having you think independently is going to be too slow for the system. Having you think independently is going to be uh, um, extraneous to whatever job you have to do, which is wrote. I mean, teaching is not considered a profession, and for that reason alone, you have all the support information so that any boob off the street could, 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 could lead a class, conceivably. Mm-hmm. And that's the attitude. You can see how they're treating adjuncts now and how they're treating tenure is being scaled back at universities across the country because universities are adopting a for-profit model. So, oh, exactly. you know, you don't, you know, so thinking independently is, is a luxury in many cases. Now, that doesn't at mean Eastern, it's happening all the time, but it is a luxury. At Eastern Carolina, um, a unit of the state of North Carolina's university system, I was in another, not that one, but another one, um, 75% of the faculty are now adjuncts. Um, I make about $9 an hour. God, oh, my God. And Falcon yeah. has a, a Ph.D. from Emory, a divinity huh? degree from Yale, and BA and MA from Fordham. James Ford, were you adequately educated? Uh, no, I mean like when I went to Long Island, when I went to Long Island, I I read, I was reading like fifteen books in a week when I was young. I was self-educated. I've been, I was maxing out my library card since I was I was able to go to the library. So, but in terms of preparation for the world, no. Um, I learned a lot. Um, of what I needed I, on my own, but I, I got a better education in Long Island. The Long Island teachers had more patience. Uh, they were better quality teachers. I wasn't treated like a like an inmate. Like I felt like, and I felt like I was a criminal when I was a child in public school in, uh, in Queens. And I went to a really good public school in Kew Gardens. I went to PS ninety nine at Jackson High one night, and uh, I still had I had really had a terrible time. Um, well, that but, you know, this gets to the 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 nub of the situation here. Is 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 is, is school just to prepare us for um, uh, the 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 our our position in the economy, or is it to uh, create independent thinkers? That's a joke, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, you're not yeah. seriously asking that question. Okay, I, I I think that if you look at the public school system, it's a factory-based system in New York City. So Absolutely. that's a self. That answer is just obvious. Independent thinking is uh, something that individual kids pursue. Uh, most kids going into schools, uh, they want they have a goal that is based on money and and material uh, uh, gain, and not a lot of them. I mean, outside the creatives to a degree, but even with the creatives, you have kids now coming out of film school who are trying to jerry-rig their online presence with their streaming presence and trying to get something together. So it's not its not something that That's people That's kind of like what we're doing here at Pundit's Pub. you got to survive, though. <laughs> you got you to figure out a way to survive the Matrix. you got to monetize I'm, it. I'm, <laughs> I'm creating a brand. I have... I have Embraced neoliberalism. I'm like, you know, it's like Hillary Clinton told everybody, well, you know, uh, do the right thing, follow the rules, and st- start a bowling alley. 
<laughs> I don't remember the bowling alley, but okay, Neither I'll go I. with that. <laughs> no, it's true. One of her commercials had had a bowling alley, a, a guy starting a bowling alley. Yeah, you need like and I think that, and I, and I think that if if we could all only start our own bowling alley, we'll we'll all be okay. <laughs> We're not living in Pleasantville. We live in a colored world, not black and white. So it's like the bowling alley is not the safe place. Vinny, uh, is your school part of the the school to prison pipeline? No, not at all. Uh, my school was uh, uh, very. I'm very lucky in the sense that in my school, um, we are part of what is called the screen. There is an extra article in the Times this past week about um, how uh, the last 15 years of the school choice system where kids select what high school they go to has basically failed. And I'm not going to go into detail. It takes way too long. But essentially, it's this. Uh, People are ignorant of their opportunities. There are a lot of great schools in the city of New York, especially in the high school system. But they suffer a dearth of students who are interested in going. My school, which is called an early college school, I have students – Regularly, a third of my third to forty percent of my high school graduating class earns an associate's degree from a local um, community college, as well as a high school diploma, and that allows them to get a leg up in, in many four-year schools because they already have two years under their belt. And so I have a, I'm very unique in the sense that I have a great situation, but I'm right down the right down the block from high schools that are not functioning. And primarily they're not functioning because they've been at the the negative aspect of the charter school revolution, that the charter schools have taken kids, have have diluted the system, and the worst thing you could have in a school is homogeneity. And I say that because homogeneity breeds um, uh, uh, inertia. There's no reason to strive. There's no energy that comes from different people being together. So if you have these charter schools taking very high function, high achieving kids, you have all these low achieving kids, these kids who have at risk, who have problems in one place, that school will fail. Likewise, as the as young men said in Kew Gardens, you have a lot of high achieving kids in one place, very bright kids. You have these teachers who don't feel like they have to do anything except tell you to sit down and shut up and copy it down. So you need heterogeneity. You need heterogeneous groupings. You need different kids striving, working together, helping each other to exceed, to make the actual success meaningful. Falcon, do you see any of that? At the university or in the state of North Carolina? (laughs) Either. (laughs) No, I'm serious, because the number one problem we have here is – not charter schools, the number one problem we have is Christian fundamentalists, the same people who brought us the bathroom bill, um, self-educating their kids at home. Mm. So they grow up marginally socialized, uh, probably more literate than their peers in the public school, Mm -hmm. um, religiously and socially segregated, um, and they believe Jesus will solve all the problems of the universe. And, Mm. you know, the Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it. Right. And I will remind you that the state of North Carolina has recently been declared not a democracy. So. Well, that's kind of where we're all going at this point. Um, tonight on Nation of Gangsters, <laughs> we've got that was Trump, <laughs> Trump fires. 
Jim Comey, and he's at his barbecue pit. So, uh, is, is uh, Vinny is Trump pulling yeah. a Nixon? No, he's not pulling a Nixon because he doesn't have half of Nixon's brains. What he's he's pulling a Putin. He's just getting rid of people and distracting what's going on. Uh, Nixon, I don't say to his credit, but at least uh, uh, Nixon had um, some ho- some idea how to govern. Uh, co- uh, all that Trump has to idea has is how to shift the blame. So now we're going to get rid of Comey, and that's going to take care of the Russian discussion, and we're going to move on. I don't think Nixon would have uh, thought that. I mean, I just I don't think he rises to Nixon's intellectual heights. Falcon. <laughs> Should well, we Steve, you know about fascism. You know that I believe in the ancient Roman method of political reform, which means I think we need to start erecting crosses on the national lawn, and we need to start hanging them all one at a time. Mr. Trump first. Mm. That had a a chilling effect on the Roman Senate that usually caused it to take its head out of its ass and re-engage its responsibility to the people. No, I'm not surprised. Giving Trump any credit for intelligence is an accident. Yes. James Ford, I I heard you're backing Rudy Giuliani to replace James Comey as FBI director. Is that true? I am definitely not backing Rudy (laughs) Giuliani on any aspect of life. A dude is like so far detached from reality. (laughs) Oh, but he looks, he looks pretty good in drag. Yeah, he just, <laughs> I was just thinking Excuse that. That's hilarious. It's good. It's, really? He looks pretty good in drag. Yeah. No, I wasn't thinking he looks good. I was thinking that's what he does. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, All right, if well, Rudy Giuliani from the 90s saw really Giuliani now, he would shoot him. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah, he is definitely not the person he was, and it's great how in this discussion of neoliberalism, we can see how money so slowly saps the soul and integrity of anybody it touches. Mm. Mm. It's power, yeah. man. It's power. Like Barack Obama's $400,000 speeches. And, and, um, and Hillary's I don't have a problem with that. I don't know about you, but I don't have a problem with that. that? We've got we're surrounded by neoliberals, and well, we're gonna we're gonna be uh, talking about neoliberalism forever on Punnett's Pub, but we've run out of time. I'd like to thank all of you for joining us on Punnett's Pub number three, and thank you, Steve. we hope to have you back very soon. Thank you. Thank you.